You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be hearing how the joint Telegraph-BMJ investigation into device regulation in Europe came about. The notified body really should have picked up the fact that this implant was based on two recalled devices Mm. and two that are subject to legal action. But first, smoking in Japan. It's the 100th anniversary of the birth of Richard Dole, the man who ran the British Doctors' Study, the study which linked smoking and cancer. Now a new study has looked at why it seemed the decade or so of life lost by smokers in the UK wasn't necessarily shared by the Japanese. I'm joined by one of the authors of that study, Professor Sarah Darby, who's from the Clinical Trial Service Unit at the University of Oxford. Sarah, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. Just a bit of background to this. What was thought about um, life expectancy of Japanese smokers that was different to those in the West? Well, about half a dozen cohort follow-up studies have been done of people who smoke in Japan. And they've all come to the conclusion that smoking takes about four years of life. So less than half what we've seen in the recent follow-ups of the British Doctors' Study, for Mm. example. And it had puzzled me for a long time as to why this might be so. And I have a personal interest in in radiation, which I've had for a long time, and I know the people who work at the Radiation Effect Research Foundation in Hiroshima. Mm. And so I wondered whether it would be possible to use the data that they've collected to look instead of instead of looking at radiation to look at the effects of smoking. Okay. Now we'll get into the um nitty-gritty of the uh, study in a second. But this four-year figure as opposed to about a decade um in the UK was that being used by sort of pro tobacco campaigners? In particular, it was used by people to say, well, of course, the data on cigarette smoking isn't consistent. Um, for example, Japan, four years only. So it's been referred to in, in oblique ways like that. And it may have been used more explicitly, but, but not in ways that, I, that I'm particularly aware of. Okay, so it's, it's used perhaps to, to sow doubt. Now, you've mentioned there that you talked to the people doing radiation research in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So they've got a big cohort that they've been studying for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about the makeup of that? Well, it would set up... The the atomic bombs were in in August 1945, and the study was set up in 1950. Overall, 120,000 people were included, and half of them had no radiation exposure, either because they were too far away or because they weren't in the city, and the remainder had some radiation exposure, but obviously not overwhelming in the sense that they had survived to 1950. Now, at the time that the study was set up, no information on smoking and other uh, lifestyle habits was collected. But from um, 1963, um, between 1963 and 1992, there was a series of surveys carried out which collected information on smoking and drinking and educational status and body mass index and so on. Those data have been analysed to look at the interaction between those things on radiation. Mm. But nobody had ever been interested, really, in looking at the overall effect of smoking per se. And so I was very glad to be able to take the opportunity of contact my 
personal contacts with the Radiation Effects Research Foundation to talk about doing this and delighted when they agreed um, to do it with us. Mm. So you're pretty confident that the data that you've got is going to give a, a good reflection of the actual loss of life due to smoking then? Yes. I mean, the obvious question that everyone says when I say that we're looking at this study to look at the effect of smoking is, is well, won't it be completely skewed by the fact that they were exposed to radiation? And the answer is no, it isn't, partly because half the people had no exposure to radiation mm. and partly because we know the radiation doses so we can adjust for them. And when we, we make an adjustment for radiation doses, the estimates of the effect of smoking aren't altered at all. So we feel confident that that aspect is making no difference to us. And also, for all the other lifestyle factors that we have uh, information on, alcohol intake, body mass index, yeah. um, educational status, none of them affect the estimate of the risk of smoking when they're taken into account in the analysis. So when you crunched your data uh, from this cohort... How did the loss of life compare then? Well, when we analysed the data, we subdivided it according to the year of birth. And for people born in the the earliest years, say up to 1920, Mm. the effect of smoking was relatively weak, similar to what's been seen in the other Japanese studies. Right. When we looked at the people who are born since 1920, between 1920 and 1945, that the risk that they're incurring from smoking is very similar to what's seen in Western Europe and um, the United States. So that's interesting. So does that mean that there's a difference in uh, kind of smoking habits between those two sort of uh, people born in those two different times? Exactly. In the, the people who are born in the earlier period tend to start smoking at a much later age, which of course reduces your risk, and also to, to smoke fewer cigarettes per day, so, which again reduces your risk. So those two features, starting later in life and smoking fewer cigarettes per day, were characteristic of the previous studies that have been carried out in Japan. But when we look separately at the people born more recently, which in the terms of this study is is from 1920 up to 1945, their habits are much more like um, people in Britain and the United States, particularly when we look at people who have stated that they started smoking before they were age 20. Mm, Interesting. Um, It's kind of surprising that people hadn't uh, realised that there was a different smoking habit before now to, uh, to, to suggest that that was why. Well... It's just a question of not putting two and two together, I think. Um, I, I mean, there, there certainly are data on cigarette consumption in Japan as a whole, but it's just a question of, of um, linking the different elements of the story together. Hmm. Well, so this, uh, this study then confirming that um, you know, a lifetime of smoking will knock about a decade uh, off your final life expectancy... Um, it's just another brick in the wall of, of all these studies that say the same thing. Well, yes. On the one hand, it is. But on the other hand, it does have a, a message for many countries because there are many countries where the epic, epidemic of smoking-related disease isn't yet sufficiently um, mature for the full risks of smoking to be apparent. And that particularly applies to women smokers who in many 
countries have started smoking later than mm, men and until relatively recently smoked less than men. So uh, the, the message to them is um, don't look at your data and think that you're, you're getting away with this. Well, don't look at data from, from cohorts of people who haven't smoked with smoking habits that are like the smoking habits of young smokers today. Great. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for taking the time to explain your research to us. My pleasure. And I mentioned at the beginning there Richard Dole's centenary. There's a cluster of articles and a video available on bmj.com. Now, the BMJ and the Telegraph have come together to investigate how device regulation in Europe may be being subverted by commercial interest. Undercover reporters took a glossy brochure into meetings with various notified bodies. They're the private companies which can provide a CE mark. And a CE mark is the EU's certification that a product's passed all their regulatory hurdles. The results of that investigation, including some undercover footage, are available in the articles linked from the podcast page. But earlier this week, I quizzed Deborah Cohen, the BMJ's investigations editor, about how the investigation came about. Deb, this joint investigation was between the BMJ and the Telegraph. So who kind of conceived of it? What was the... How did it come about? Well... I mean, the Telegraph had had similar questions to those that we'd had, um, which is what actually goes on inside these notified bodies? Um, what is the process? We'd heard all sorts of things like, you know, there some are lax, um, they're not fully equipped to evaluate high-risk devices. Um, and the Telegraph approached us to do something jointly with them and that was the start of the investigation um you said there that you know you'd heard sort of things about this um already i mean obviously we've been doing medical device regulations been a bmj topic for a while um but you know this sort of more explicit worries about these things where did that come from well, we have from various sources that companies go on a shopping exercise. So what that means is they shop around to find out who will actually give them um, a certificate to be able to use on the European market. And obviously, it's separating out rumour and speculation from actual evidence. So when I in, in the past, when I've pressed people and said, well, you know, you say they shop around, what evidence do you have? And they could never give any specifics. And they were people from outside the notified body system. And so it made you wonder what exactly does go on and whether we could find out where those weak spots are, which which were those notified bodies who perhaps were willing to put a device onto the market with relatively little oversight. Now, this has been a long time coming to to this point uh, where it gets published. So there's various steps along the way. And one of those was getting ethical approval to actually do this sort of undercover journalism. Before we decided to do any of this, obviously, we thought we should seek our own ethical approval and go through our own ethics committee and discuss what the hurdles might be and who might be at risk um, and whose interests it was both the Telegraph and the BMJ, totally separately, came to the conclusion that actually 
there isn't much more that's in the public's interest than making sure the implants that are put into their bodies are well regulated and trying to find out where those weak spots are. So after a discussion with our ethics committee, we thought we would go ahead and continue with the undercover investigation. So you created this dossier, which is this mocked up glossy brochure, and that set out the device. Um, What did you put in there and what did you want it to, to show up? Well, what we thought was we didn't want to just pluck any old device out the air. We picked a product, an implant that's had massive global attention and we wanted to know whether the notified bodies would spot the flaws in our dossier and also what their attitude would be to such a controversial implant. We wanted to assess um, their attitude towards clinical studies, pre-market clinical studies or whether they um, wanted us to go through what's called similar equivalence, which is you do a literature review of a similar implant, and that's the evidence that's provided on your own implant. This was just sort of an initial fact-finding. It wasn't presenting fake evidence to them to see how they would spot that. Well, actually, we did do that. We decided to submit a full scientific dossier, and they call that a technical file Mm. um, in device legislation, to one notified body. Um, And we were going to submit it to two, but obviously there are costs attached and time attached. And what we did is we picked one in Slovakia that said that they would cross the line. Um, and Cross the line to... And it's in help, yeah, yeah, to help the manufacturer. So we decided to submit a full dossier and it was quite it was very technical. We had some tests in there because we wanted to see whether they picked up on um, specific scientific issues or clinical issues to do with the hip. And we made it very, very obvious. So we didn't offer any specific clinical study data. So we hadn't done any clinical studies in our dossier we'd gone down the similar equivalence route. So our similar equivalence devices were two that had been recalled already globally. Um, One of them, the ASR XL, very high profile Mm. recall. And that was uh, part of a a previous investigation of ours. And that was part of a previous investigation. And the other one is subject to legal action in the United States. So, you know, we we gave some real humdingers in our technical file and we repeated that a few times you know our Mm. hip is similar to these particular three devices we also did a test called a wear test in the dossier that showed actually it produced extremely high um, levels of wear so metal ions um, in a short period of time so they should have perhaps spotted that and we also created design flaws in the implant that you would have thought or you'd have hoped that um, someone would have picked up on. And and what, again, we found out when we were doing the investigation is the levels of expertise varies wildly Mm. amongst these notified bodies. So some said they worked with a doctor and a chemical engineer. Others said they worked with experts in orthopaedic implant production and universities. Um, But the notified body really should have picked up the fact that this implant was based on two recalled devices. Mm. And 
two that are subject to legal action. Absolutely, there's such big red flags that that should have been immediately obvious. What's been the fallout from this? I mean, has there been much reaction? It's very soon after those pieces have gone to press. Um, but already uh, the UK's health secretary anyway has paid attention. Jeremy Hunt has made a statement, the health secretary. Andrew Miller, who's the chair of the Science and Technology Committee, who has a report coming out on implant regulation, mm. has essentially said the findings were shocking, particularly when um, one of the notified bodies actually explicitly stated we're on the side of manufacturers and their products are not on patients. Um, Has there been any reaction at the sort of European regulatory level at all? Yeah, I mean, they've said that regulation is not good enough Um, and it's ongoing at the moment. They do have new proposals coming out in December what we know about that is that they're going to ensure there's more oversight of the notified bodies. But how far it's going to go is questionable. Now, something I don't think I quite understand is the rationale that because medical technology moves so quickly, it changes so quickly, we need these these notified bodies to assess the products why that precludes having one central regulator is beyond me because that is what happens in the states Mm. it's what happens in japan it's what happens in china it's what happens in south korea and what was kind of amusing um in some ways is even the notified bodies in asia are kind of looking at europe saying yeah you're much more on the side of the manufacturers here where in government-run agencies in other countries, they're much happier to kill the product early on and and Mm. not allow it to go onto the market. And as Deborah said, there's no official response from the EU yet, but once there is, we'll put it on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be hearing about the continuing saga of Tamiflu, why the data's still murky three years on. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.